David. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, we come before you and in a like manner want to gaze upon you. Inquire in your temple and gaze upon your beauty. Open our eyes. Cause our hearts to be revived by your word and spirit. And bless your people, we pray. In your son's precious name, we ask this. Amen. You can be seated. When Nick asked me to preach, uh, a preacher's go-to response is usually to recycle something that they have just done and just preached. And so I knew that couldn't happen because I have also been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And even though I'm a couple chapters behind Nick, uh, he went a little faster than me. Uh, I, I didn't want to preach something that you've already heard. I definitely didn't want to preach something that would disagree with what Nick has already said. So I have turned to a favorite psalm, I think for most of us, which is a psalm of David, a psalm of trust, a psalm of faith. And I have titled this psalm, Heaven Sent Faith for Earthly Times. Heaven Sent Faith for earthly times. What we see from David in Psalm 27 is a faith which is given from God, coming from God, coming from heaven, and yet is fleshed out, breathed out, and realized on earth. You have heaven, where God's will is done perfectly, and you have earth, where problems arise, adversaries armies encamp against his people. And what we see is a typical reality. God's people in trouble, in trial, testing, facing problems of various sizes and duration, and yet the pillow that faith can be, um, the requisite faith that all Christians have a extreme comfort and blessing 
in times of problems. David was a man who knew problems. Some problems he brought upon himself through his own sin, his own foibles. Some problems searched him out. And we don't exactly know what is going on in David's life in this time, but it clearly is a psalm from David, and he is recalling something in his life. He could be recalling when he was told he will be king, and yet wasn't king yet because Saul, that spear-throwing monarch, was harassing him, wanting him dead. It could have been through in that time. It could have been during a time when his own son Absalom wanted him dead. We don't know when it was, but David has problems. You and I have problems. We have problems within us. We have problems without of us, outside of us. And yet what we see in this psalm is a a confident uh, faith, a bold trust in the Lord, no matter what comes, because even though things happen here on earth, we don't ultimately live for here. We ultimately live for glory, for heaven, the, the new heavens and the new earth. And, and that eternal a perspective, that heaven-bound gaze that David has, I want to talk about today. Uh, our faith always going back to the Lord, always going back to concrete assurances and promises that we will dwell with God forever, with him before his face. And any problem that we have now will not jeopardize that. So much of our problems are exasperated because we want what eternity offers now. Eternity offers no sorrow, no pain, no death. But we want that now. And we're like that bratty, Willy Wonka girl. We want it now. Our problems, our problems are problems. Our problems become worse and they are exasperated when we realize we want it now and we bring heaven down a little prematurely. And we ask God or we think God will give us what he will promise for later, actually now. And so we despair. We become despondent. Or we doubt God, his goodness, the assurances of his word. We face delusionment, all because we have switched heaven and earth. We have switched the timing of God's decrees. And I don't say this to belittle the rich promises the believer has now, the indwelling spirit, the confidence, the assurance of faith, All the blessings of Christ's atoning death applied now. I I don't belittle any of that now. But when we look at this passage, we will see David so confident, not because his circumstances are changing, because he desires God in glory. He desires heaven. He desires glory. Eternal glory. And he understands that that will happen. One day it will happen. Wait for the Lord, he tells himself and those who read his prayer. All things will be resolved at some point. Some things will be resolved now, but not all. And so we have this tension, a a heaven-sent faith and earthly trials. So as we walk through this, I want to keep that tension Alive, yet also look at what kind of faith David shows. What kind of faith we have. What kind of faith we, we have that we should be nurturing. Uh, we should be attending to. 
by reading scripture, by praying, by fellowshipping with other saints and so forth. So first, we see the kind of faith that David is talking about, or he has here, is faith that dispels fear. Faith that dispels fear. We often can boil life down to this. We can live according to faith or according to fear. And he says quite boldly, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I have no reason to fear. He's my stronghold of my life. Why do I have to be afraid? He, the Lord, the reality of God and faith in God dispels all our fear or can. Now, I think a legitimate question is, how do we know David is talking about a heavenly expectation and an eternal glory and not a earthly battle, earthly salvation, earthly deliverance? Well, when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, the two together are referring to a, a salvation beyond the earth. Light often having a, a supernatural or a spiritual significance. The Lord isn't just his salvation in the here and now, escaping the Philistines or Doeg, the Edomite, that rotten little scoundrel, or Saul or anybody like that. No, the Lord is my light and my salvation eternally. He is the stronghold of my life. Not just the 70, 80, 90 years I'll live, but my soul. And for that reason, even when evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh, I, I can be confident because they cannot touch where my life is hid in Christ. Though an army encamp against me, my heart won't fear. He, he, David isn't concerned about being undefeated in all his uh, battles or having friends around all the time. No, he's confident he's with the Lord in glory. He's confident the Lord is at his side spiritually as well as physically, but primarily and most importantly, spiritually. And so that gives him great confidence. Though war arise against me, I will be confident. I mean, that, that's the greatest threat David could face. You think about, what's the greatest threat I could face today? Maybe getting COVID or something like that. And you, you see the picture he paints here. Though war arise against me or an army camp against me. You know, you just picture the, the battalion of horses and chariots coming at David. And he's going to be confident before them because they might they might destroy his body, but they will, they will not touch his soul, his life. One commentator says appropriately here, weighing, as it were, in the scales, the whole power of earth and hell, David accounts it all lighter than a feather and considers God alone as far outweighing it all. He, he put in the scales all of his problems, all of his issues, all of his things of life, enemies, betrayed, betraying friends. And, he's, and then in this side of the scale, just one thing, the Lord, God alone. The Lord is my light and my salvation, my light and my salvation. He's not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. In all the circumstances you face, everywhere you go, we don't have to fear, for one, because they can't touch our enemies, our problems cannot touch our soul, and we're not alone. You know, when Paul was pinning probably his last letter, 2 Timothy, and he writes at the very end of that last chapter, they've all, they've all left. But the Lord has stood by me. Everybody's gone. But the Lord is near. 
And that's the sense that we get here with David. Eternity is something that cannot be robbed from him. And the Lord is present with him here. And, and so he has great faith because the Lord supports him. And he doesn't, he doesn't live for this life. He lives for heaven. Secondly, we see that his faith is full of affectionate trust. His faith, this heaven-sent, God-sent faith, is full of affectionate trust. And we'll see that in verses 4 through 6. Historically, faith has been described of having three parts. An intellectual part, an intellectual part which is a positive recognition of facts. Our, our faith is founded on facts, in part. Um, Jesus, uh, the inspiration of the Bible, God, the Holy Spirit, they're not myth. They're true realities. They're facts. And so part of our faith is built on just an intellectual uh, confession. I agree that as much as the sky is blue, Jesus is alive in heaven. Okay? Our faith also is built upon an emotional element, an emotional part, a, a deep conviction of a feeling, a feeling that God does meet our deepest needs, my sin to be forgiven, my, my deepest need of being a transgressor of God's law, and instead of being smited by God and his just justice, he actually forgives the sin, and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. And though our sins like are a mist, he dispels them. And, though, and so there is a natural emotional involvement. Sometimes we get a little too uh, uneasy, maybe get a little too emotional, talking about the emotional aspect of faith because it's been abused in some circles, but nevertheless, our faith does have affection. It does have love. It must. It must. And it also includes a volitional aspect, a, a volitional part, so that we actually choose God or place our faith in God or trust God. One guy would say, this volitional aspect of the faith is the soul going out towards its object and appropriating the truths of the gospel for him or herself. Okay, so there is a going out. There's a going out. Faith has also been called an empty hand. Lord, please fill it. I, I cannot put my life in my hand. I cannot put my forgiveness of sins in my own hand. You, you must do that. Please fill that. And on the other hand, as we'll see, um, well, in other parts of the Bible, actually in Luke, the, I think it's in chapter 7, you have a great illustration of the woman with a hemorrhage. She's reaching out, reaching out to touch Christ's garment. That's, that's an act of faith. But she believes he is able to do what she believes him to do. He's powerful enough, he's loving enough, and he's wise enough to do it. And he's able to do it. And of course, the classic illustration for this faith is, is what we have heard from so many camp Christian stories of, of the chair metaphor, right? You take a chair. You believe that its construction is able to hold you up. You have the facts that it's metal or wood or whatever it is, and it's able to support you. You have the intellectual knowledge. And you also place that knowledge, uh, you, you choose to use that knowledge to place yourself in the chair. And we do this all the time. I'm sure everyone did it in this room without even thinking about it. But you choose to sit in the chair. Of course, where the, where the metaphor falls short is 
you, you won't ever pick up the chair and hug the chair. You don't love the chair. Um, some of us do love our own sofas and couches and chairs. But you wouldn't embrace the chair. You would understand it, it's made for a certain reason, and I, I'm going to use it. But saving faith would then embrace and love the chair, Christ. And we see that with all three of those aspects, the, the intellectual, the emotional, and the volitional part in verses 4, 5, and 6. David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, I will go after, I will volitionally go after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Okay, that may not sound affectionate. There may not be a word that says, I love the Lord. Oh, but he pines and yearns after the Lord to dwell with God forever. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. David's desire is to be where the Lord is. Now, he's not talking about the tabernacle or Zion where Yahweh's temporary worship was located before a concrete temple was built by Solomon. No, he's talking about glory. He wants to be where God is in glory. He wants to flee this life. Flee this life. And be with God in heaven. The eternal temple, the eternal house of the Lord. And there, the Lord will hide him in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal him under the cover of his tent. And he will lift him high upon a rock. He will, he will, he will. That's, that's the language of, of faith. I trust he will. He will. And there is also language of affection. In verse 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. That's joy. That's affection. That's love. Now, I want to hit something home here and focus on. When David says... He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Uh, what is he talking about? He wants to gaze upon the Lord, but you must understand the language of Old Testament writers and also New Testament writers. Looking, beholding, gazing, is often a metaphor for knowing. He wants to gaze upon God. He wants to know God. He wants to know God deeper. If you follow along with me or turn back to Exodus 33, there's a great illustration of this. You know in Exodus 33... Moses' plight. Uh, he is a leader of Israel. He is interceding for Israel. And in the midst of this very burdensome task, he asks God, in verse 18 of chapter 33, show me your glory. Okay? Show me your glory. He wants to see. He wants to see the glory of God. And 18 is followed up, verse 19. And he said, this is God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay? And you know what happens in the next chapter. In, in chapter 34, you have Moses 
in the cleft of the rock, hidden there, wedged in there. And the Lord says that I'm going to pass by, but you're just going to see like my, my back. Okay, you, you can't bear the full glory of me and, and live. You'll just shrivel up and die, okay? Even the angels who are sinless can't do it, you know? So he tells Moses, um, hey, hide in here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come by. But, but this is actually the same story, just the next chapter, but this is how the Lord showed Moses' glory. Moses, God's glory. This is how Yahweh showed Moses God's, his own glory. Verse 5. And Yahweh, or the Lord, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He's, he starts to talk. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. Now, pretend you don't know the rest of the story. I know you do. But what would you expect if, if, if you said to God, show me more of you? Or Moses said, show me your glory. What kind of sight? A more cosmic light show than what he's already seen in the temple, in the, in the tabernacle? A more glorious vision of God? A more uh, out-of-body experience, emotional, surreal moment? No. Verse 6, Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He asked, Moses asked for a sight. Show me your glory. And the Lord spoke. He taught. And Moses worshiped, beholding the Lord, gazing, let's warp back to Psalm 27, gazing on the Lord, seeing the Lord is to know the Lord. Or to know the Lord is to see him, to know him, to know He's merciful, gracious, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, just, patient. That is knowing the Lord. That is knowing the Lord, and that is seeing the Lord. So when we open our Bibles in the morning, we may not have a physical sight of the Lord. But we might come across John 3 and say, wow, the Lord loves. I see him. That's how the Bible writes. Uh, excuse me, that's how the Bible's written. That's how the New Testament, Old Testament writers write. To see is to know. And to know is to see. And so, you could pick up a systematic theology, pick up a Bible, learn of the Lord and gaze on the Lord. To learn of the Lord is to behold the Lord. Knowing is seeing. I think we have to understand that prior to heaven, prior to glory, that is our sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. And, and walking by faith is to behold God invisibly through his word. Through his word. Don't, don't, don't pray and hold your breath for an amazing mountaintop experience. It might happen. God is very gracious to deal with us as little children. 
and say, you don't really know what you're asking for. But I will condescend to you, and I will bless you. However, he doesn't always give us what we want. And praise the Lord that he doesn't, or we'd be in worse cases than we are. Be like my, my children. I want ice cream, chocolate milk, and skills for breakfast. No, you're not going to get that. That's horrible. I'd be a horrible dad if I gave you that. Once, let alone more than once. But we ask the Lord as a child for, show me your glory, show me your glory. And all we have to do is open his word and we see him. Because we walk by faith not by eyes of our head, but of our heart. So the true knowledge of God, true trust of God, is inseparable from joy in God. And uh, the temptation is to then sometimes, if your joy is zapped, uh, to pursue the joy. How can I get that joy back? Um, I don't know if it was Nick or my other brother, Ryan, who gave me a book by John Piper, uh, How to Fight for Joy, or how to, when, how to Desire God When I Don't Fight for Joy, or something like that. And it, it, it didn't make a lasting impression on me, <laughs> even though I don't remember the title. What's the title? How to, that's not important. Uh, sorry. Um, so we do pursue joy, but sometimes when we pursue joy, that's actually just a tangent we shouldn't do. Just pursue the Lord. And joy will follow. Pursue the Lord. What does David say? One thing have I, have I wanted. One thing have I desired. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord. One thing. If you have one wish. One wish. What would you want? If you could ask for anything in the world. What would you want? One thing have I desired. May that be our heart. That when it comes to anything in life, not winning the lottery, not erasing the COVID thing, not getting a bigger house, but one thing I want, my most deepest desire, is God alone. God alone. That's what I want. That's who I want. Thirdly, so faith is, heaven-sent faith is, is dispelling fear. It, it is full of affectionate trust. Thirdly, heaven-sent faith or the faith that we have by the gift of God goes back to God. It goes back to God. The, the Christian in trial naturally goes to God, prays to God. Now, sometimes we look within ourselves and, and we, find, we find ourselves wanting, lacking, that is. But true Christian faith, heaven-sent faith, God-sent faith, goes back to God. You see here in verse 7 to verse 12, David's cry, David's prayer. Now, this might be a little weird. He, he's full of confidence. He's full of boldness, joy. He's, he's on cloud nine. And then the downer, verse 7 through 12. And he's praying, and he's in the muck and mire of life all over again. Well, I, a couple things. One, this might be the, the prayer that he's recalling when he was actually in the moment of trial. So he's pinning Psalm 27 sometime after his trial. But as he's pinning it, he's, he's remembering, I remember praying this. And he, and he says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. And so we have his actual prayer. But notice that this is very, very normal. Very normal for Christians to wax and wane with confidence and desperation. Very normal. If it's not normal for your Christian life, talk to me, please, because I would like to know your relationship with Christ, because it's far better than mine. But it's very normal, very Christian, very grace-maturing walk 
to be full of boldness, and then also then to say, do you hear, Lord? Do you? Because I don't think you do. Don't turn your face away from me. I'm even doing what you ask. You said, seek my face. I'm trying to seek your face. I've got, I've got nothing. This is very normal. This is the Christian life. And so we see here a, a series of supplications in verses 7 to 12. Hear when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer me. Hide not your face from me, verse 9. Turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Teach me your way, verse 11. Lead me on a path. Verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. He's just going rapid-fire supplications and prayers. Help, 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 help me, Lord. Help me. And he even reasons. He even reasons with the Lord. It's amazing what we learn about prayer in Luke 11 when Jesus gives the parable of which one of you has a friend like this who would go to him at such an hour at midnight and he would shut the door and you wouldn't have anything to give before your friend who's coming from a long journey. The Lord says, that's not the Father. That is not the Father. You being evil may act like that, but that is not the Father. The Father gives exactly what, or what, uh, exactly what his sons and daughters need. But here, we see in, verse, in, chapter, in uh, Psalm 27, David reasoning with God, holding God accountable to his word. And that is bold humility. That is bold humility to say, before the king of kings, who holds your life and soul in his hand, who redeemed you, who created you, it is bold humility, but it ought to be done to be said, you said, seek my face. That's the kind of audacity, the kind of gall the Lord says is acceptable before his throne. That is not thinking God is a genie. No. That's actually praying what you believe God said to be true. And what God says is true. You have said, seek my face. Uh, I'm doing that. <laughs> Your face, Lord, do I seek? And look where I am. Look where I am. This is a normal, normal experience. And he even goes on to say, like Paul in 2 Timothy, I'm fully alone, but I, own, I only have you. Verse 10, my father and mother have forsaken me. Now, the meaning of this it could be either they're dead. They're, they passed away. They're, they're no longer alive. And in a sense, they have left him alone. They're not around to take care of him. Could be that. It could be that they actually did forsake him. And uh, they weren't as high on David as they were their sons. Which they apparently were at some point in their life when Samuel is coming to David, or Jesse, saying, bring me all your sons. Even the little guy out in the field. <laughs> but David, feeling alone, feeling forsaken, confidently does say, in the midst of depression, in the midst of some sort of spiritual fit, that the Lord will take me in. But the Lord will take me in. We're not, we're not bipolar, but this is the normal expectation of the Christian life. To have highs, to have lows, 
And it's, it, it's just not static. It's, not, it's very dynamic. Full of ups and downs, highs and lows, wins and losses. It's, it's not even keel. The problem is sometimes we base our standing before God on where we are in one of those mountaintop experiences or in one of those valleys. We should not do that, not at all looking to our own experience, but the Lord alone. So this is, but this is spirit-granted biblical confidence. Not a nothing-will-faze-me attitude, but a honest prayer before the Lord. That despite so many threats, armies and armies encamping against him and wars and evil, evildoers and adversaries and foes, it's not, oh, I'm unfazed by all that. No, it's, it's true honesty before the Lord. These bother me. These really bother me. It is so good to be honest before the Lord. So good to be honest before the Lord in prayer knowing he will take me in. He's not going to discard me. He's not going to bail on me. He will take me in. Lastly, we see that this faith that David has, this faith that you possess, Christians possess, is a faith that waits for the Lord to bring him home. This is kind of something we've been hitting the entire time, but he closes the psalm this way. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David will often, often, in his psalms, uh, especially in his psalms of lament, psalms of mourning, uh, sorrow, contrition, and sadness, and he will make his case known before the Lord. And he sounds like, just he just sounds rotten. He sounds hopeless. He makes his case known. He sounds hopeless. He sounds beat up, just the worst, the dregs of Christianity. And then he just flips it. And he says, but the kindness of the Lord or the faithfulness of the Lord. And then he also will often turn and it looks like he is talking to somebody else or to himself. We know he definitely turns to the congregation because that's how many of the Psalms are worded. He speaks of the, turning to the congregation of the Lord and addressing them and saying, look what I've learned about the Lord. Look how I've, I've screwed up my life. And look how the Lord has been so faithful. I want to tell you about that. It's a very simple recipe for how we can interact with each other the non-Christians, I'm a wretch, but God saved me. Can I talk to you about it? <laughs> Very simple recipe, and that's what he does here. He pours out his confidence before the Lord. He pours out a, a prayer of, of desperation, probably recalling the moment he was in that trial, and then he closes with more confidence. And he says to himself, he says to us, wait. Wait for the Lord. Now, we don't like to wait. We don't like to wait. But we should wait. Wait for the Lord. And he's not just thinking time. There is an element of wait for glory, wait for the Lord to come. And all will be made right. All the wrongs against you, from Saul, from Absalom, from all your enemies, Philistines, whoever it may be, all your wrongs will be righted. There is an element of time, but also look at what he says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. He's praying and asking God and asking himself to have some spiritual endurance, spiritual fortitude. Be strong. Take courage. Some of your Bibles may actually have those flipped. They are very similar. The, the Hebrew words very similar between strong and take courage. Wait for the Lord. Take courage. Be strong. Or be strong. Take courage. Either way, fortify yourself with the promise that heaven will come one day. 
It will. And all will be made right. You know, it's kind of like there are some kids in here. So you ever, you, ever been, you ever been promised a trip to like Disneyland and for some reason or another, it's just not coming fast enough. And in some shape, form, or fashion, your parent will say, Disneyland's not going anywhere. It'll be there when we get there. Heaven's not going anywhere. It will be there when the Lord comes back. We are to wait for the Lord. Wait amidst trial. Wait against persecution. Wait amidst suffering. But to wait. Yes, wait for the dawning of that new heavens and new earth, but, but, but not just like, not just live into glory, but to wait with courage, but to wait with spiritual strength, to run the race set before us with joy, with endurance, leaving off sin, leaving off all those obstacles which would easily trip us up. Leave those off and run the race with endurance, with strength and courage. And in that sense, it is similar, very similar to what Pastor Nick read earlier. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's what we are waiting for. This world has done a number on us to trick us to think that everything we have before us is all we need. And that's a, it's just, it's just wrong. Uh, it's a lie. But to wait for the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living is not David wanting Israel promised land, Canaanite land. The land of the living is the land of the Lord, the living one, where there is no death. There's only life. Imagine that. Only life in heaven. No death, no disease, no decay, no rottenness, no nothing. Life. Life abundantly. That is our hope. That is what we wait for and that is what we are told by Peter is kept in heaven for us. It is reserved in heaven for us. It's not going anywhere. So here's our, here's our charge. To wait for the Lord. Understand that these attributes of faith exist for you. Faith dispels fear. It is full of affection and trust. It goes back to God in prayer, and it waits. It waits. May the Lord content us with waiting. Content us with waiting, but not waiting alone. Waiting with Him, the indwelling Spirit. Waiting with full gospel promises realized now. That's how we ought to wait. Let's pray. Gracious Father, our Father in heaven, we, we praise you that you are our light and our salvation, our stronghold. Though we convince ourselves we have causes for fear, we really do not. The reality that we are hid in Christ and our life will be revealed when life, when Christ comes back, that is true. And give us your grace to hold on to that truth. Thank you for the reminder that we live not for this life, but for the life to come. And in the life to come, we will have your full expression of love, of favor, and help us make use of your blessings, of your gifts, 
that you have granted today. That your spirit abides within us and teaches us and guides us. That your son intercedes, intercedes for us. And when the devil brings a slandering accusation, we can leave, leave it to his argument, confess it, and trust in his perfect sacrifice, which has cleansed us from sin. Cleanse us from all our sins of action and all our iniquitous thoughts, desires, motives. Thank you for the table we will soon celebrate and honor of your son's death. Walk with us, we pray, as we live this life, as we look to heaven and await with you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As we do prepare to take communion together today, I think of um, really how good the Lord is to us in, in taking communion. He gives us something to do today, right? Something to taste, something to hold, something to grab onto as we wait for what is still to come. Heaven's not going anywhere. It'll be there when we get there. I love that. But this is something that we can do because we're weak and because we struggle. In faith, what it does is, it, like my brother said, it, it drives out fear. So we can come to the table in that way. Faith grabs a hold of what it is that God gives to us today. Faith turns back to God in prayer as well. Faith is full of affection. And so these are the things that we're mindful of as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you are new to North Hills, we do invite for you to partake of this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to partake of this time together with us. This is something that we do together, and so in a moment I will invite you to get up and grab the elements um, and then return back to your seat with them and spend a few moments in prayer before we actually partake of uh, the elements together. So um, feel free to get up and grab the elements or turn back to your seat, and then we will partake of our time of communion together here. Mm -hmm. 